University of California Television presents this podcast of Bishop John Shelby Spong, recorded on the UC San Diego campus on November 18, 2004, as part of the Burke Lectureship on Religion and Society. For more information about this and other UCTV programs, visit us online at www.uctv.tv. Enjoy the presentation. Bishop Spong has so many uh, accomplishments, so many uh, degrees, honorary degrees, best-selling books, uh, media appearances, death threats, uh, (laughs) such a long list of of notable um, achievements, welcome or unwelcome, uh, that I'll let you read about those for yourself in the program. And I'd just like to mention a couple of things that I learned about uh, Bishop Spong uh, tonight. Uh, He said, the most important achievement of my life is falling in love and marrying my wife, Christine Spong. He also spoke of how, despite his uh, traditional upbringing, um, it was difficult to remain a sexist while raising daughters. Uh, one of uh, Bishop and uh, Mrs. Spong's daughters, Rachel, is tonight uh, flying Cobra helicopters in Fallujah. So those of us who, uh, who are comfortable with uh, the notion of prayer, um, I ask that when we do pray that we keep Rachel um, and all of her colleagues in our hearts. And now I'd like to introduce Bishop John Shelby Spong. Thank you very much. I think the image of a bishop in love with his wife is just a very positive one to bring around. When I was the bishop of Newark, the archbishop of our sister diocese was Theodore McCarrick, who's now the cardinal in Washington. I was actually consecrated bishop in that cathedral because it was so large and so magnificent. And I remember saying, Ted, you really do have better quarters, but we have better halves. (laughs) It also helps to marry above yourself, which I've certainly done. Well, thank you for being here, and thank you for the privilege of giving the Father Eugene Burke lecture. I am deeply honored by that invitation. This is our third or fourth visit to the San Diego area in the last few years. It is truly one of America's most beautiful cities. And some of my most admired friends are in this city as its citizens. I even like your baseball team. (laughs) I think you are better than average, and part of the reason is that you had a New York Yankee named David Wells pitching for you. He was not outstanding this year, but he's a boomer, is a wonderful character to watch. Sometimes he's in a fight at a local pub. Uh, You also have a football team that's doing better than anybody expected. You need to know that at one point in my life, I was a play-by-play sports announcer, so I can't get these things too far out of my system. 
I was sponsored by Wink, that sassy drink, and Happy Dan, the TV man. (laughs) The title I have chosen for this Burke lecture is The Terrible Text of the Bible. That's the working title of a book that I will publish next April. For many devout religious people, that's a kind of jarring juxtaposition of two words. We don't normally think of the word terrible and the word text in the same breath. Texts come from a book we call Holy Scripture. Millions of Americans refer to the words of the Bible as the Word of God. So how can something terrible come from a sacred source? Yet within the pages of the Holy Bible are specific texts that have been used for centuries to diminish human beings, to encourage hatred, to enhance prejudice, to justify warfare. It has not been different with the sacred writings of many other religions. The word jihad, for example, is now familiar in our vocabulary, and it implies a kind of God-blessed, hostile act. Religious people in the name of God have over the centuries been willing to torture both their enemies and their religious rivals. A couple of years ago, I was in San Diego, and I think the name of this museum is the Museum of Man. It's a bit sexist, but I think that's the name of the museum. (laughs) But they had a display of the instruments of torture that Christians have used on their enemies through the centuries. The enemies of the Christians were called the heretics. They were those who could not or who would not accept the authority of the church. The assumption was that the church was always right, so if you disagreed with it, you were disagreeing with God. And among the instruments of torture that I looked at was a steel collar with a spike aimed right at the throat, which could be tightened until the person either repented or died, the spike going right into the throat. Of course, it was administered in the name of the God of love. They also had a variety of instruments that they used in their torture of heretics and those who would be called infidels that were instruments with which they impaled their victims. These instruments were in rather torturous shapes. It's not the thought of thing that Christians like to think about, but it's part of our history. I suspect that in the history of the human race, more people have been killed in religious wars than in any other kind of war. One has only to listen to the rhetoric of people who are world known today to see that. Let me remind you that on September 11th, 2001, 
Osama bin Laden hurled his suicide airplanes into the World Trade Center and into the Pentagon, invoking God. Let me remind you that George W. Bush invoked God when he began the Iraq War, hurling his missiles and his bombers on the people of Iraq. An estimated 100,000 Iraqis died in that war, of course fought in the name of God. And every day you read newspaper stories where Palestinians in the name of God strap dynamite around their waist and go into Jewish restaurants or Jewish buses, killing themselves and anyone else who is hapless enough to be in that location. And not to be outdone, Jewish people invoke God when they send their tanks into the Gaza Strip or into the West Bank, smashing the homes of would-be terrorists. And one is only to go to Ireland, where you can find Catholics who invoke God while they kill Protestants. And not to be outdone, Protestants invoke God when they kill Catholics. Have you ever wondered what kind of religion it is that produces this kind of behavior, this kind of manifestation of what it means to be part of a people of God? Well, the answer is quite clear. Every religious system in the world is infected with what I would call a tribal mentality. I think one could make a case that there are basically three tribal religions in the world today. The Judeo-Christian religion is the tribal religion of the West, and we're quite sure that God is on our side. Because I write a column on the internet each week, I carry press credentials, and with press credentials, I was able to attend the nominating conventions of our respective parties. The fascinating thing about both parties in their conventions was how often they invoke God upon their prejudices. Every speech in both parties indiscriminately ended with God bless America. I wasn't sure whether it was a command or a prayer. <laughs> and then certain politicians were a little bit more tribal than that. Senator Boxer of California only wanted God to bless California. <laughs> And Senator Hatch of Utah only wanted God to bless Utah. And the one that I enjoyed the most was Representative Charlie Rangel of New York, who only wanted God to bless New York. And that one interested me because I lived just across the Hudson River from New York in New Jersey. And I could see the blessing of God invoked by Charlie Rangel covering all of New York and then coming to a screeching halt at the <laughs> Hudson River, lest it bless an infidel. When you think about it, that's a strange mentality. I love watching some baseball players like Tom Gordon, relief pitcher for the New York Yankees, who usually does the eighth inning before we turn it over to Mariano for the ninth inning. And if he succeeds in getting all of his outs out, he comes off the mound pointing to God. <laughs> Because clearly God hates the Red Sox. 
That's tribal thinking. Tribal religion is identified by claiming that somehow you enjoy God's favor and your enemies enjoy God's disfavor. I hope I live long enough to see somebody kick a field goal from maybe 63 yards out in the last five seconds of a championship game, Super Bowl, say, and have it go through the crossbars. And at the end, when he's being interviewed, have him say, you know, I got that kick through because I am good. <laughs> because I've practiced all my life, because I've developed great leg strength. Not God guided that football through the uprights. Because God doesn't like the opponent. That's tribal thinking. Well, we think God is somehow in our employ, and we do it on lots of levels. We are deeply tribal people. We are hardwired for tribal identity. To the degree that religious systems are not purged of these tribal elements, the human race is in danger. We're always able to justify our hatreds as long as we think tribally. If we are God's chosen people or if we are God's chosen nation or if our nation is to be the instrument of God's holy will, all of which permeate the way we think around the world, then we will always find a way to cover our hostility and our prejudice, prejudices with pious words. And if we can only find a text in Holy Scripture that justifies our hatreds, then we are quite well served. Maybe we ought to begin to look at our sacred story, those of us who share the Judeo-Christian tribal religion, and to recognize that in our sacred story we postulate a God who has a chosen people. The problem with having a chosen people is that everybody else becomes God's unchosen people. And if they're God's unchosen, there's a very fine line before they become God's rejected. And if God has rejected them, then it is perfectly all right for me to reject them. And a lot of our biblical story is written from that perspective. God hates everybody the favored people hate. God always fights on the side of the chosen ones. Let me take you back to a very famous story in the biblical tradition. The Jewish people are slaves in the land of Egypt. The biblical story says God appears to Moses <clears throat> in a burning bush and directs him to go up to Egypt and set the children of Israel free. Even the most secular of us know this story, not because we've read the Bible, but because we've seen Cecil B. DeMille's dreadful movie. <laughs> and that story says that God inflicted the Egyptians with plague after plague after plague after plague. And in the middle of those plagues, even the Pharaoh has had enough, says our Bible. And so the Pharaoh goes to Moses and says, Enough, Moses, call your God off. We'll let you go. 
And so Moses prepares for the exodus. And then the Bible says, but God hardened Pharaoh's heart because God wanted to hit him one more time. So we have plague after plague after plague. And then there's the final plague, all in the Bible, where God's going to send the angel of death throughout all the land and murder. I think we ought to use the emotionally charged word. God is going to murder the firstborn male in every household. And the Jews are told that they are to put the blood of the Paschal Lamb on the doorpost of their homes because this angel of death does not appear bright enough to know the difference between a Jewish home and an Egyptian home. So it's got to have a bloody signpost out there. And when the angel of death sees this bloody signpost, he will pass over the Jewish home and only kill Egyptians. And then while the Egyptians are grieving for their lost firstborns, the exodus occurs. And it seems that the Egyptians get over their grief fairly quickly because after the Hebrews have started their exodus, the army of the Pharaoh with its tank divisions of iron chariots is sent after them. And the biblical story says, Moses looked ahead of him and he saw the Red Sea. And he looked behind him and he saw the army of the Egyptians barreling down upon him. That's being caught between a rock and a hard place. <laughs> and he didn't know what to do and he inquired of God and God said, walk into the waters of the Red Sea. And the story says that the water split. And Moses and the people of Israel walked through on dry land. And the Egyptians said, well, if they can do it, we can do it. So into the Red Sea plunges the army of the Pharaoh and God causes those walls of water to come back down and drown all the Egyptians. And then God is portrayed on the other side of the river or the sea as rejoicing at the death of the Egyptians. My friends, that's a very tough view of God if you happen to be an Egyptian. <laughs> but you see, nobody reads this story from an Egyptian perspective, they recognize it as the tribal literature of our ancient forebears. That's not the only place where you have that mentality. And if you can find that in the Bible, why can't you apply that to your enemies today? Why can't you assume that God hates everybody you hate? Why can't you be tribal? There's that wonderful story in the book of Joshua. Where Joshua is at war with the Ammonites, the people of Ammon. And Joshua is winning that war and he is killing his enemies. And suddenly the sun begins to go down. And Joshua knows that his enemies are going to get away under cover of darkness. So Joshua prays to God, says the story, and God stops the sun in the sky. First instance of daylight saving time. <laughs> God tampers with the laws of the universe for the sole purpose of having more Ammonites get killed. It's not a very noble purpose to monkey with the laws of the physical universe. And of course, that was the text that the early fathers, not so very early, that the 17th century fathers used to condemn Galileo. They argued if Joshua could stop the sun in the sky, then it is quite clear that the sun rotates around the earth. So Galileo is wrong. 
I was relieved that in 1991 the Vatican issued a paper that said we now believe Galileo is right. (laughs) Christian church catches up, but sometimes 400 years too late. He jolly well better have been right. We were doing space travel by that time. (laughs) And then there's that wonderful story told in the book of Samuel where King Saul is the king. And the prophet Samuel approaches King Saul with a word from the Lord. You are to go to war against the people of Amalek. You are to kill the Amalekites. And Samuel's instructions are quite clear. You are to kill every man, every woman, every child, every ox, every ass. Can that possibly be the word of God? Is a text that justifies killing and warfare and hatred and prejudice, can it ever be the word of God? Is it not rather a terrible text where human prejudice has been confused with human worship? Listen to some other texts that are in Holy Scripture. The sacred story of both the Jews and the Christians. Do you know what the first command that God was said to have given to the first man and the first woman after they were created? It was, be fruitful and multiply. When that story was written, the Jewish people were in captivity in Babylon And their survival was the most important thing in the world. They believed that they held a covenant relationship, and if they did not survive that captivity and someday return home, the covenant would be lost. One can understand a command from God, be fruitful and multiply. But that text has been used to justify opposition to family planning and birth control in our day. When the world's population has gotten beyond the capacity of our environment to sustain it. And where the ice cap of the Arctic region is melting in a way that can even be measured year by year. And where the people in the southern tip of Argentina and Chile. And in the southernmost parts of Australia in Tasmania and in the South Island of New Zealand. People in those parts of the country of the world are today dealing with doses of ultraviolet that is far beyond the health ability of human beings to sustain. In Australia, we were going past a school in Tasmania, and the little children, five, six, seven-year-old children, were out on the schoolyard playing And they were very strange because every one of them had on a wide-brimmed Aussie hat. Have you ever watched little children play dodgeball or soccer with wide-brimmed Australian hats? And so I inquired about this phenomenon. And it seems that the schools are state schools in Australia and they can prescribe the uniform that all the children have to wear. And about three years ago, on advice from their doctors, they insisted that the children not go out into the daylight in those southern hemispheres without these hats because the Antarctic ozone is so thin it is no longer safe. 
And we have politicians in our country that wonder whether or not global warming is real. Be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth. Is that the word of God? Or is that the prescription for ecological disaster? We could go on. The 20th chapter of the book of Leviticus says that homosexuals should be put to death. And many a person has acted upon that word of God. You're certainly familiar with the story of Matthew Shepard, the young Wyoming student who was set upon by a group of mid-20 adult males, beaten until he was unconscious, hung up on a fence post in sub-freezing weather in Wyoming, and left there until he died because they did not like the fact that he was a gay man. And when he was buried, he happened to have been one of my tribe, he was an Episcopalian. When he was buried at his church where he had served as an altar boy all through his high school days and where he was a deeply committed member of that community, his funeral was picketed by a Baptist preacher from Topeka, Kansas. His name is Fred Phelps. His website is godhatesfags.com. And at this funeral with this grieving family were these picketers carrying placards that said, God says fags should die. See Leviticus 20. Is that the word of God? Or is that a terrible text of human fear and human hatred wrapped around the pious part of our sacred tradition. Look at what the church has done to women. Sometimes modern women do not know what a struggle your mothers and grandmothers and great-grandmothers had. It was only in the last quarter of the 19th century that women in many of the states of this union could own property in their own name. Their property upon their marriage was transferred from the father to the husband. In 1873, a woman in Illinois, whose name was Myra Bradford, did everything the state of Illinois required to qualify to receive a license to practice law in the state of Illinois. There were no prohibitions against women because nobody thought a woman would ever apply. It was outside the stereotype of people's imaginations of women's behavior. And so the Supreme Court of Illinois turned her down and she appealed to the United States Supreme Court and by an eight to one decision with the majority decision written by Justice Joseph Bradley and the one dissent being Chief Justice Salmon Chase, the Supreme Court of the United States said that it is not fitting for a woman to practice law because God has designed her for the more domestic role. Today, two women sit on the Supreme Court making that decision visually inoperative. <laughs> Women did not get educations in this country with very rare exceptions until the 20th century. And most colleges for women started as teachers' colleges because 
The teaching profession no longer paid men enough salary to attract a sufficient number of them into the profession. So it was women were a source of cheap labor to keep the educational process going. And so teaching colleges to train women to be teachers in America was the way women came into the educational process. And almost every great university for women started with a teacher college. The Christian faith has been that way for a long time. As, as was said by Mary in the introduction, I have four daughters. You might be able to look at life through your mother and not be challenged. You might even be able to look at life through your wife's eyes and not be challenged, but it is very hard to look at life through your daughter's eyes and not be challenged with the barriers that are set up against your daughters. You heard about one of our daughters. The other three are equally boundary-breaking types. I don't know where they came from. <laughs> My oldest daughter is the managing director of a major southern bank headquartered in Atlanta. My second daughter is an attorney teaching in the law school at the University of Richmond. My third daughter has a PhD in physics from Stanford University and is in the high-tech industry. And our fourth daughter has a degree in chemical engineering from Columbia University. And she's the pilot of the Cobra helicopter, a captain in the Marine Corps. And she has been involved in the Fallujah action. You just can't raise daughters like that and still be a sexist. <laughs> I've said to my friends, the biggest reason that the Roman Catholic Church can't get its head right about the role of women is that none of their priests have daughters. <laughs> and religion has treated women poorly in every one of the great religions of the world, every single one of them from the binding of the feet of the Chinese women so that they can't run away from the authority of their male superiors. And then you go back into the Hebrew tradition, you'll discover that women were defined as property in great parts of what we call the Old Testament. You see it in the Ten Commandments. Justice Roy Moore of Alabama didn't quite read the same commandments that I read. He would not have wanted to put them in his courtroom. Have you ever noticed that the Tenth Commandment says, we think, you shall not covet? But what it says in the book of Exodus is, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. The fascinating thing about that is that there is no prohibition in any of the 66, or if you add the Apocrypha, a considerably larger number, books of Holy Scripture, there's no prohibition anywhere against anybody coveting their neighbor's husband. That seems to be okay. <laughs> You just aren't allowed to covet your neighbor's wife. Have you ever wondered about that? The Tenth Commandment is a commandment about property. Men were not property, but men, women were. And if you don't believe me, look at that commandment in the book of Exodus. It says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. That was his most valuable property. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, nor his wife, nor his slaves, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Your neighbor's a male. And the woman is part of the male property. 
How can anybody want to make the Ten Commandments the moral standard for our world in the 21st century when it treats 50% of the human race as if they are property? It's even present in the Seventh Commandment. I always love to look at my audience and say, Seventh Commandment, hmm, wonder which one that is. <laughs> but it's the one you all know, it's the commandment against adultery. And that one seems very clear. You shall not commit adultery. That's not even nuanced. Everybody knows what that means. It's perfectly obvious, except for one thing. When that commandment went on the books of the Torah, the marriage pattern was polygamy. A man could have as many wives as he could afford because wives were property. And remember King Solomon? We say he's wise, but you have to wonder when a man has a thousand wives how wise he is. <laughs> I don't know what adultery means when one man owns a thousand women. <laughs> Folks, if you have a thousand wives and still have some need to commit adultery, you've got a problem. <laughs> and may I suggest it's not just a moral problem. You've got a bigger problem than that. <laughs> That's the history of women in religion. And so St. Paul can say, Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands. Women are to keep quiet in church. If you want to know anything, ask your husband in the privacy of your home. And one of Paul's followers who wrote the epistle to Timothy could say, I forbid a woman to have authority over a man. Tell it to my marine. <laughs> That's an irrelevant cultural pattern that because it got placed into the sacred scriptures of the Judeo-Christian tradition has become a terrible text which has enabled women to be oppressed through the centuries. Terrible text. And then, of course, there is slavery. The Torah says that you cannot enslave one of your own people. <clears throat> It says you must get your slaves from your neighboring countries. That makes the Canadians and the Mexicans eligible, doesn't it? And when Paul wrote to the people in Colossae, to the Colossians, if Paul is in fact the author of that epistle, and there's some debate about that, but if it's not Paul, it's one of Paul's disciples, Paul instructs people on how to be a proper slaveholder. He tells the slaves they must obey their masters. He tells the masters they must be kind to their slaves. Paul was in favor of a kinder and gentler slavery. <laughs> it never occurred to him to challenge a social system that by its very nature diminishes the humanity of a child of God. And I grew up in the South, where segregation was not only the practice of my region, but it was sanctified with biblical quotations. God did not intend race mixing. And I know all the texts that they used. And when we finally got rid of slavery, it left two bastard stepchildren, segregation and apartheid. And both were defended in the religious community. When the South seceded, it was a bishop of my church that took leave of absence from his bishopric 
because he was also a West Point graduate and he was a military general fighting to preserve the institution of slavery and he did not seem to feel that there was any problem with that terrible text. And then look at what we've done to children. If you believe that children are born in sin, which is what the church has taught for a very long time, that means that by their very nature they are evil. And so it's okay to beat them. Spare the rod and spoil the child, as the text has been quoted more often than once. And that kind of physical discipline of children has more, on more than one occasion led to the abuse of children that ought to horrify every one of us. We have sanctified violence with pious rhetoric. And maybe the most evil text in the whole Bible is the story told by Matthew at the cross where Pilate comes out and washes his hand and says, Oh, I am innocent of the blood of this just man. And Matthew makes the Jewish crowd shout, His blood be upon us and upon our children. And that text has justified the most cruel kind of anti-Semitism throughout history. You can look at it in the early fathers of the church, people like Jerome and Tertullian and Polycarp and John Chrysostom, who said the most terrible things about Jews. He said Jews were vermin, unfit for life. They were the Christ killers. Good Friday used to be a terrible day in Europe for Jewish people. Jewish families would keep their children inside because the people would worship in the, in the great cathedrals of Europe and they would hear the story of the Passion read and what the Jews did to Jesus. They would come out so enraged they wanted to justify their Christian conviction by beating up Jewish people and killing them. When the Crusades came in Western history, most of the Crusaders never made it to deal with the infidels of the Muslim world. Some did, but most of them didn't make it. They only made it two or three villages over, but they were hell-bent to kill infidels. And the only infidels they could find were the Jews. So the Crusades are remembered by the Jews as a time of massive slaughter. And when the great bubonic plague swept through Europe in the 14th century, the Christian church, who didn't understand anything about germs and rat infestation, and they viewed that plague as punishment from God. And they kept wondering what in the world they had done to receive this overwhelming punishment where one out of every four adults in Western Europe died in the bubonic plague. They couldn't even bury them fast enough. Try to imagine one out of every four. Look at your own family. And if it has four people, the statistics would be that at least one of them would have died in this epidemic in every household. And the Christians finally decided that the reason that God was visiting this terrible plague upon Christian Europe was that the Christians had tolerated infidels in their midst. And of course they meant by this the Jews. And so the response to the bubonic plague was the worst persecution of Jewish people until Adolf Hitler topped it in an ostensibly developed Western Christian nation in the 20th century where in the name of God, even a misplaced understanding of God, some six million 
Jewish people were annihilated and the government of the United States and the government of Great Britain and the government of Canada and the papacy of Pius XII just simply watched that happen with little or no intervention because anti-Semitism was deep enough in our souls so that we want, weren't filled with abhorrence at what was happening in that land. His blood be upon us and upon our children. They asked for it, we said. Now all of these things are present. They are part of our Christian history. These terrible deeds have been justified by text from a holy book. And we have used those texts to perfume that human hostility with piety. Tribal religion is a killing religion and it infects every religious tradition of the world. I can speak to it in my own tradition because I have seen that experience. And of course the great debate that's going on in every part of the Christian church today is whether or not homosexual people are fully human. That's not the way we state the debate, but that's what the debate's about. Whether or not homosexual people are simply morally depraved people who choose to act in a morally depraved way, or whether they're perhaps mentally sick people who cannot help it. That's the liberal response. <laughs> and the debate is so intense that Christian bodies are splitting over it. And the ecclesiastical hierarchies of our several churches are far more concerned about the unity of the church than they are about the injustice that we are doing to the gay and lesbian people. The unity of the church is not the ultimate value. The truth of God is... And I'm not interested in being part of a church that is kept together in homophobic unity. The first way to deal with this dark side of our religious heritage is to admit it. And I'm amazed at how many Christians don't want to admit the evil that we have done in the name of God throughout our history. Our first task is to admit it, to face it openly, and then to move to purge it. Christianity has encouraged our ecological disaster. Christianity has encouraged our anti-Semitism. Christianity has encouraged our patriarchal prejudices. Christianity has encouraged our cultural homophobia. And Christianity has encouraged the abuse of our children at the hands of religious institutions. It is not just something that a few bad individuals did once upon a time. It is a systemic religious game that is deeply corrupting the faith in the Christ that we claim to serve. And in every instance, it is justified until far too late in history 
by appeals to Holy Scripture. Does this undoubted, historically verifiable behavior of terror on the hands of the religious people of the Western world, does it justify the modern world's total abandonment of the Christian faith? There are an awful lot of people that think so. People in our country worry about the rise of the religious right, but they might be interested to know that rising even faster is what I call the Church Alumni Association. <laughs> the people who no longer want to find or even want to search for their meaning inside that religious tradition. No, I don't think it calls for the abandonment of this story. But it does call for being conscious of our evil. It does call us to stop justifying evil in the name of God. It does call us to confront the tribal elements that are always part of our religious tradition. It does call us to face the terrible text of the Bible and to bring them into consciousness. But I think it also calls us Christian people to develop a willingness to be able to look at the Bible in a new way. A religious text that diminishes any human life. A religious text that seeks to denigrate any human pathway to holiness cannot possibly be part of the God of life. So whenever you see the religious institution on the side of diminishing life, whether it's the life of a gay person or the life of a minority or the life of a woman or the life of another religious tradition, whenever religion diminishes life, it cannot be of God. And you cannot perfume it by quoting the text from Holy Scripture. Scripture is not God. Scripture is a human creation by people who are seeking God, but their humanity constantly got in the way. Every religion of the world begins with a tribal mentality. Every religion starts with God calling a people. But it does not have to remain there. That's what we got to understand. Even our biblical story moves on from tribal identity. And if we knew the rest of the story, we would find it powerfully inviting. It moves from the idea that only one nation is God's favored people. Until a voice that we call Malachi, which means my messenger, the last book of the Old Testament. Malachi comes out and begins to transform that tribal meaning when he writes from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name shall be great among the Gentiles and in every place incense shall be offered unto me. The Bible moves from persecuting those who worship differently to Jesus' words that if you are not against me, you are for me. It's interesting that Matthew turned that around when he copied it out of Mark's gospel 
And Matthew said, if you are not for me, you are against me. But that's not what the original text says. It says you can walk arm in arm with your brothers and sisters of other faith traditions. So long as you're not against each other. You might be walking a different pathway. But you're journeying into the mystery and holiness of God. The Bible moves from treating women as property to Paul asserting in Galatians that in Christ there is no difference between a man and a woman. In Christ that boundary disappears and it is your humanity that counts. The Bible moves from a willingness to exploit and even to enslave the poor or the conquered to the concept of the prophet Amos who said you can never divide worship from justice. The worship of God is nothing more than human justice being offered to God and human justice says Amos is nothing more than the worship of God being lived out and if anybody thinks they can separate the worship of God from justice among human beings they have never read the great prophetic tradition of our sacred story. The Bible moves from a God who sends plagues upon your enemies to a Jesus who says that you must love your enemies. You must bless those who persecute you. It moves from the idea that God is well served in proper liturgy. Offering proper sacrifices, doing proper religious rites. The people of the Christian world get their emotions so bound up with their worship practices that they think if you change those worship practices, you've destroyed God. I know Episcopalians periodically go through the catharsis of editing and changing their prayer book. And a lot of them drop out. <laughs> How can God be worshipped in words other than the 1928 prayer book, they say? Sort of reminds me of that woman who was upset that her pastor read the lessons on Sunday morning from some version of the Bible other than the King James Version. And she said, son, if the King James Bible was good enough for Jesus, it should be good enough for you. <laughs> so the Bible moves from the idea that God is well pleased with proper liturgy and with sacrifices and with religious rites to the words of the great prophet Micah, who dismisses all those religious activities. And who says, what does the Lord require of you? Not proper worship, but to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. If religion is ever used as a justification for war, it is a false religion. And it matters not to me whether it is an attitude articulated by Osama bin Laden or George W. Bush. If the Bible is ever quoted to justify prejudice and oppression and even death, of any child of God for any reason, 
then it cannot possibly be the Word of God. Let me close with a text from the Bible that I do believe captures the truth of God. I believe it captures the essence of religion. And as a Christian, I believe it captures the ultimate meaning of the Christ. It's a verse attributed to Jesus. Whether he actually spoke it, I do not know, but it captures his meaning. It's in the fourth gospel. When he's engaged in a conversation with his disciples about his purpose. We only hear the conclusion, so let me try to recreate the conversation. The disciples were wondering about his purpose, and so they supposedly asked him, Jesus, tell me why you came. Did you, came, did you come to make us religious? And Jesus pauses a moment, and he says, no. No, I didn't come to make you religious. There's an awful lot of religion in the world already, and most of it's evil. No, the world doesn't need more religion. I didn't come to make you religious. Well, Jesus, did you come to make us righteous and moral? Jesus parries that for a moment, and then he says, No, no, I didn't come to make you righteous and moral either. He said, My experience with people who are righteous and moral is that they know a great deal about judgment, but almost nothing about loving. No, I didn't come to make you righteous. Well, did you come, Jesus, so that we would be the true believers? We would have the true faith. We were the true church. We would be fully orthodox. And Jesus says, no, no, I didn't come to make you true believers and orthodox Christians. My experience with people who think they have the true faith is that they always put their wagons in a circle and start shooting at anybody that disagrees with them. <laughs> no, I didn't come for that purpose. And then there's a note of exasperation, and they say, well, Jesus, why did you come? This is a church, early church, wrestling with the meaning of this life. And the words they place into his mouth in, in the answer is, I've come for but one purpose. I have come that they might have life and that they might have it abundantly. So that if any activity is ever undertaken in the name of the God that we worship or the Christ that we serve that violates the life of any human being, it cannot be of Christ, it cannot be of God. And maybe the time has come that we should stop saying that those things are, quote, the Word of God. The whole purpose of the Christ, the whole purpose of the church is to build a world where everyone in that world has a better opportunity to live fully and to love wastefully and to be all that they can be in the infinite variety of our humanity. People of every race and every ethnic origin male and female, gay and straight, transgender, bisexual, left-handed, right-handed, all the varieties of our humanity. The job of the church is not to tell somebody what they must be to satisfy our emotional needs. The job of the church is to free everybody and to love everybody into being all that they can be. That's the message of the gospel. I have come that you might have life 
and that you might have it abundantly. St. John's Gospel quotes Jesus as saying, By this shall people know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. There are no exceptions. Jesus did not say, Come unto me, some of ye. <laughs> he said, Come unto me, all of ye. And when the church understands that message and claims it, and purges itself of the dark messages of our history and the terrible texts of our scripture, then maybe there will be a reformation that will indicate to the people of the world that the church is once again a community into which they can come so that they can worship the wonder and the mystery of God. Thank you very much. We've got a little bit of time for a bit of question period. Let me say a couple of things. We don't have microphones and they are trying to record this. So your questions need to be brief because I'm going to have to repeat them. I find that a lot of people don't know how to ask a question until they give a 15-minute preamble. <laughs> and I can't remember a 15-minute preamble. So if you want to ask questions, please shape them and frame them briefly and I will try to repeat them. And secondly, I have a rule about questions. And that is every other question has to come from a woman. <laughs> I'm really tired of being in assemblies of the church where 50% of the human race is muted. So I want the first question to come from a woman. And after that, every other question can come from a man until we get to the last question. And I'd like for the last question to come from a woman so that we can say in one tiny venue of Christian history, women were given the slightest little bit of an advantage. <laughs> so I recognize the first lady. Yes, ma'am. So what do we do about this war? <laughs> I don't want to be blatantly political. But we had a chance to do something about it on November the 2nd, and we didn't do it. Now, I think you need to recognize that the reason that we didn't do it is that this nation is still caught up in the grip of fear. And one candidate presented himself as better able to deal with the threat and the fear than any other. And, of course, he buttressed it with appealing to the darker side of a lot of human life about abortion and gay people and gay marriage. The only thing that I can tell you about the war is that we can't win it, we can't lose it, and we don't know how to get out of it. <laughs> Have you ever been in a poker game where you suddenly realize you weren't winning? And then you realize you couldn't win, and then you realize you couldn't get out? That's pretty desperate. My guess is there'll be a negotiated withdrawal sometime within the next year. And the process will be to try to put an Iraqi face upon that war before we withdraw so that we can withdraw with honor. 
I've forgotten which senator it was in the middle of the Vietnam War who said the way to deal with this war is to pass a resolution of the Congress of the United States declaring that we have won <laughs> and then withdraw. So I don't know. It, it really tears me apart in more ways than you can imagine. I have been opposed to the war. I thought it was the wrong war to be fought in the wrong place at the wrong time. It violated all the rules. I don't see my nation as a nation that uses preemptive war as a strategy of foreign policy. I think that violates everything about my country. And all the reasons that we were given for going to war turned out not to be so. They kept shifting the reason. There were no weapons of mass destruction. There were no chemical weapons. There was no atomic arsenal being developed. And so finally we said, the reason to end this war, we're in this war is to get rid of an evil man named Saddam Hussein. Okay, I don't want to make a case for him. He's a pretty evil man. But we got rid of him. So who are we fighting now? And then they say, well, it's all these terrorists who've come in there. But everything in Fallujah indicates that about 98% of the people who are the insurgents are Sunni Iraqis. We're in the middle of Iraq's civil war. Is that in the best interest of American foreign policy? And we've had about 1,200 of our kids die. The Guardian of London says that over 100,000 Iraqi civilians have died. That's an awful lot of carnage for a war that doesn't seem to have a, a justifiable beginning and it doesn't seem to have a justifiable exit. I really grieve that Colin Powell is leaving this administration because I thought he was marginalized, yes, but he was the only voice that argued that you don't go into Iraq unless you've got a strategy to get out, you've got military goals that you know you can accomplish, and you go in with overwhelming force. Our daughter is on her second tour of Iraqi duty. She was over there from January of 2003 through May when the forces of our country swept through Iraq, captured Baghdad almost without a fight, and our president appeared on the aircraft carrier and announced that the mission was accomplished, and they sent her home. One of the few perks of military life is they sent her home by way of a slow boat. So she had a week in the coral reef in Australia and a week in Honolulu. It's right nice payoff. And then all of a sudden, she's sent back for a seven-month tour of duty that can be extended. Folks, you don't send the Marines back unless things are really bad. The Marines don't do maintenance and occupation. The Marines kick down the door, win the battle, and they bring the Army in to do the maintenance. They had to send the Marines back. For those that know anything about our military history know that that's a desperate sign. So she's now back for seven months. Uh, we hope she's out in May. Uh, we plan, if she's out in May, and if she's alive in May, we're going to go to England, and she's going to come from Iraq for her furlough, and we're going to walk across England from the Irish Sea to the North Sea together. It's only 190 miles. But that'll be a glorious and wonderful hike. And she's a glorious and wonderful daughter. But I don't know what we can do beyond that. I wish I did. Uh, yes, sir. Um, thank you for your presentation tonight. Uh, I'm concerned about how we bridge the gap between those of us who are like-minded in this room and, and others 
who have the traditional to conservative to even fundamentalist views of religion. What, what's the foundation for a, a conversation that could be in any way productive? What's the, what's the foundation for a productive conversation between those that may be called religious progressives and those that may be called the right wing or the religious minority or whatever they're called, the conservative southerners. I must tell you that in my experience, conversation's not the way it goes. I don't know how you have a conversation with somebody who's convinced that they're right. It doesn't lend itself to a lot of discussion. Uh, I think one of the great sins of organized religion is that people identify their perception of God with God and claim that they possess the truth and that anybody disagrees with them disagrees with God and I don't find that conversation is very helpful with that kind of person I grew up as a fundamentalist in North Carolina so I know the mentality because I've used it I know the Bible backwards and forwards and I can quote scripture as well as Billy Graham and if I was still in that mode of life, I know all the defense mechanisms that you would use. If I, could, if I could say what I think will happen rather than what I'd like to do, I think what will happen, and it always seems to me to happen in human history, is that this mentality that is certain that they have the truth will overstep its toleration level in the body politic. They're in a very strong position because they now claim, rightly or wrongly, that they delivered the massive turnout of voters that elected our president. And so he owes them a lot. Now, if they use that to parlay their agenda into his agenda, and so we have a Supreme Court that reverses Roe v. Wade, and we have a Supreme Court that begins to cloud the boundary between church and state and in effect to move America toward a kind of established religion, then I think that the majority of America will finally rise up and say, no, I don't want to go in that direction. But that's just my hope. Usually in these movements, they overstep their boundaries. Mr. Reagan had the support of the religious right he courted it. It began to be courted in American politics in the campaign of 1964 when Barry Goldwater deliberately ran what he called the Southern Strategy. Oh, he didn't talk about race, but he talked about the abuse of the federal government and the necessity to protect the state rights. Well, that's code language where I come from. The reason we wanted states' rights protected is so we could treat black people the way we wanted to. That's what states' rights meant. And the federal government was evil because the court began to say, you can't act like that anymore. So when Barry Goldwater uses those phrases, and remember, he broke the democratic solid South. That had not happened since the Civil War. But he was an unsuccessful candidate. Lyndon Johnson managed in that campaign to scare the world with Barry Goldwater. <laughs> and Barry Goldwater is not near as bad a person as he was painted to be. I loved him when... The issue of gay in the military came out. Uh, Barry Gore was still alive. and Somebody said, Senator Goldwater, what do you think about gay people in the military? And he said, I don't care whether they're gay or straight, so long as they can shoot straight. <laughs> he was a pretty blunt-spoken fellow. But in 1968, Richard Nixon ran the Goldwater Southern strategy, and he was successful. And from that day on, 
the Republican Party has been the party of the Southland. When I was a kid, the Republicans didn't even put up a candidate for governor and senator in the South because they had no chance of winning. And all that began to change. It basically began to change in 1965 when Lyndon Johnson got through the Congress, the Voting Rights Act, and black people began to register and vote. In the South, we'd use poll taxes to keep black people from voting. But what the white population doesn't understand is the poll taxes also kept poor whites from voting. So the politics of the South was ruled by the courthouse crowd in every little county seat. Now, my cousin was elected to the Senate in 1966 in Virginia. And there weren't but about 850,000 votes cast. Virginia's a great big state. He won by 611 votes. We called him Landslide Spong. <laughs> Guess who he defeated? He defeated a four-term senator named A. Willis Robertson, who had a son named Pat. Life is really interesting the way it intertwines throughout the generations. So what, what has happened is that black people came into registration and began to vote, and the white folks didn't like black people around them, so racism is at the heart of the religious right, at the heart of it. If you don't understand that the religious right that votes Republican today is the George Wallace vote of yesterday, you don't understand American history. So I think what will happen is that as time passes, prejudices die. Every time you have another election, four years from now, we're going to have an eight-year swing in our electorate. Four years of voters achieve voting age and four years of voters die. That's an eight-year swing. And on every major issue, whether it's race or women or gays, as soon as the 35 and under crowd achieves the majority, then the prejudices die. Prejudices always die. And the rigor mortis is when they're publicly debated. You don't debate a, public, you don't debate a prejudice until it's already begun to die. So in 1988, when the Southern Baptist Convention met in solemn assembly somewhere in the South, probably in Montgomery, and they passed a resolution reaffirming their traditional negativity toward gay and lesbian people as anti-Christian and anti-biblical and evil, I said to myself, the battle's over. It was a 90% majority, but that meant 10% of the Southern Baptists were raising enough questions so they had to reaffirm it. You don't reaffirm things unless they're passing away. So I think we ought to read the signs. When it begins to be debated publicly, it's over. It's just a matter of how long is it going to take you to live into the new reality. So what we have going on in our world today on the gay issue, on the women's issue, and ultimately on the religious issue, is that a new consciousness is competing with an old definition. And the new consciousness will always win. That doesn't mean there's not a lot of pain between now and when the victory is obvious. When the Allied armies established the beachhead of Normandy on the 6th of June, 1944, there was no doubt as to the outcome of the war in Europe. Hitler could not win. With the Allies coming in to France and the Russians pushing in from Russia, there's no way he could win. And everybody knew that, but that didn't mean that an awful lot of people didn't die between the Normandy beachhead and the Elbe River when Germany finally surrendered. And I think that's where we are on these great issues. So that we, the victory is clear. We know which side's going to win. The question is, how long is it going to take? 
and how many people will die before the victory is achieved. I wish I could give you a more helpful, hopeful answer than that. We'll take a lady and then if my clock is right, that ought to be the last question if we want to observe our time. So who would like to be the final lady? I can't, if there's anybody back up here, I can't see beyond those two lights. They're absolutely blinding. So just shout out. Yes, ma'am. Good question. If there's so many terrible texts in the Bible, why do we keep using it? That's a very good question. That really is the question that I'm addressing the book to that will come out about the 1st of April. My working title was The Terrible Text of the Bible, but Harper Collins never likes my title, so they've changed it. <laughs> and it'll come out under the title The Sins of Scripture. And then it'll have a subtitle that says, Shattering the Text of Hatred in Search of the Love of God. And though I didn't have time to do it tonight, I hinted at it tonight. Because the first thing you've got to do is to recognize what Scripture is. It's the tribal story of a people as they walk through history, and it is always evolving. The earliest documents in the Old Testament are probably the document we call the Yahwist document, and then secondly, the document we call the Eloist document. And I liken those to the Iliad and the Odyssey, which is the tribal story of the Greek people, or maybe Beowulf, the tribal story of the Anglo-Saxon people. And what we need to do is to begin to recognize what the Bible is and take away from it all of that idolatry with which we have encased it. I did a television program in Denver maybe a month ago, with the president of the Southern Baptist Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, a nice gentleman named Dr. Albert Mahler. And we had not gotten into the debate a minute before he sort of laid his stake in the ground and said, of course, I believe that every word of the Bible is the inerrant word of God. To which I said, have you ever read it? <laughs> That's not a very nice thing to say to a Baptist preacher. But I must say that when I hear that, I wonder if they've ever read it. When Paul says to the people in Galatia, I hope those who bother you will mutilate themselves, do you think that's the word of God? That's the word of Paul, and he's very angry. I was speaking to the Hemlock Society's national meeting a couple of years ago. And I was the first Christian that had been invited to speak to the Hemlock Society because Christianity generally takes a dim view of physician-assisted suicide. And the reason that we take a dim view of that is that we have this mythology that life and death are decisions that only God can make. And when a human being takes over the life and death decision, we have usurped something that belongs only to God. Well, that doesn't make much sense when you read the Bible and you see how many crimes or indiscretions call for the death penalty. And we've taken the power of life and death thousands of times. So I went through the books of the Bible, 
and I listed all the things for which capital punishment was required. It'd be enough to keep the people in Texas working overtime. <laughs> you get put to death if you worship a false god. Well, that's an interesting one. It depends on who does the defining. You get put to death if you are a child and you talk back to your parents who are willfully disobedient. You're taken to the gates of the city, says the book of Deuteronomy, and stoned until dead. How many of you would still be alive? <laughs> and it says you are to be put to death if you commit adultery. I shall not ask how many will still be alive. It says you will be put to death if you curse. <coughs> And I found one I'd never found before. It's in the 20th chapter of Leviticus, if you'd like to go home and look at it. It says, you shall be executed if you have sex with your mother-in-law. <laughs> and I've never heard that preached on in my entire career. <laughs> and I think the reason I've never heard that preached on is that you've got to imagine sin before you can do it. <laughs> So to get back to your question and to treat it with seriousness, you see, alongside these tribal elements in this tribal story are these magnificent breakthroughs where some minority of the holy people catch a new vision and begin to incorporate that vision into the sacred story. One of the prejudices of Christian people is they like to say, well, the God of the Old Testament is the God of justice and the God of the New Testament is the God of love. That's not so. You haven't read the book of Hosea. Let me take just a minute to close with Hosea because it's a great and beautiful story. Hosea is an older prophet. He's married to a young and beautiful woman with flashing eyes and dancing feet, and her name is Gomer. <laughs> and Hosea and Gomer are a rather attractive status couple around town. But Hosea is a lot older, and Gomer is sort of a younger wife, and after a few years, Hosea doesn't want to go out to all the parties, but his wife still wants to go out to all the parties, and so there's some tension in their marriage. And finally it gets to the place where Gomer goes out to these parties by herself. And then according to the laws of that culture, one night Gomer did not return. And because she was such a beautiful woman, she became sort of the pre favorite plaything among the upper crust of the citizenry of Israel. She was sort of a high-level sex partner. And then, as inevitably happens in the passage of time, crow's feet began to appear around her eyes, and gray hair began to occur, and she began to sag in places where she had never sagged before. <laughs> And she became less and less desirable to the upper crust, and so her life descended, as was the plight of a woman in those circumstances. And so she descended into the plaything of anybody that would have her. And finally she got to the place where no one would have her. And Hosea searched for his wife, Gomer. And the only place he knew to search because he understood that world was at the slave markets because that would be the ultimate fate of such a woman. And one day he went to a slave market sale and this haggard old woman with matted hair and bloodshot eyes was brought out on the slave auction block. And the crowd around there began to laugh 
Who in the world would pay anything for that old hag? But Hosea recognized that as his wife. And in a strange and bold act, he stood up when the bidding was open, and he offered the highest price that anyone would pay for the strongest young male servant. And the crowd turned in astonishment and began to laugh and to ridicule this stupid man who made such an incredible offer. He could have had that woman for nothing. He's going to pay that kind of price. That's the only way Hosea knew how to begin to restore Gomer's dignity. And he walked up onto that slave platform and he paid the price and he took her by the hand and he brought her to his home and he installed her as his wife, the head of his household. And Hosea looked at that experience and meditated on that about the meaning of God. And he began to say, you know, as I have loved my wife no matter what she did, so the holy God must love the people of this world no matter what they do. And no matter how often the people of this world, and these are Hosea's words, go a-whoring after false gods, God still loves them infinitely. And God's love still calls them back into the full dignity of their humanity. And so it was Hosea, more than anybody else, who began to talk about the very nature of God to be love, the kind of love that takes us just as we are and empowers us to become all that we are capable of being. And it was his own domestic crisis that led him to see that. The love of God is present in the Jewish scriptures. And Jesus simply builds on that. And by the time you get to the New Testament, the first epistle of St. John, in the fourth chapter, this, epistle, this apostle writes, Do you want to know what God is? God is love. Do you want to know how you abide in God? You abide in love. So Jesus is in the Hosea tradition. And the love of God becomes the very definition of who God is. And if the love of God is what God is all about, the diminishment of human life in the name of God has to be a violation of everything that we think God is. So the reason I cling to this sacred book and spend my life studying it and teaching it is that I recognize it starts with a tribal mentality, but as it journeys through history, it opens up into the wonder of the love of God. So the subtitle of this book is Shattering the Text of Hatred in Search of the Love of God. And that's what the Christian church has got to do if it wants to live and witness in the 21st century. Thank you very much for spending tonight with me.